Welcome to What Magnificence with Chase Thornock, where we help high-achieving executives and entrepreneurs find answers to their most vexing health problems through the power of what if. Now, here's your host, Chase. Hey guys, what's good and what if? Welcome to What Magnificence. I'm your host, Chase Thornock. Today, we're going to talk about a listener request. Uh, as I mentioned previously, I've been getting requests on different topics and I'm so grateful for them. Please keep them coming. As you think about things or are curious about things, please let me know. Uh, and also please rate the show, share it with your friends. Um, and let's get, let's get more questions coming in. So <laughs> this one's great. I had one of my listeners say, you know, they, they've been experimenting with the breath and the cold work. And it was fascinating because we were, we were talking about it and they said, listen, I just need you to put together, just need you to put together a podcast that describes exactly to me why I'm doing this. <laughs> why, why am I, why am I breathing? And more specifically, why am I getting into this cold? Every, every day, why am I doing cold? Why is this a thing? Okay. And that's in an effort to fulfill this promise. So why are we doing breathing? Why are we doing cold? We're going to talk about that first, and then we're going to blow it all to pieces. Okay, a little bit of a spoiler alert. But let's talk. Let's feed that left. Let's let's feed that left lobe. Let's feed that frontal lobe. That part of us that really wants to know the really logical reasons why we're doing things. And then we're going to talk about why that doesn't matter. So when I embarked on my journey, that was a key component for me. I wanted to know why what I was doing worked scientifically. That was critical for me it, it, to the point where even during some of my treatments, I would say, hey, let's not try two medications or three medications. I just want to try one so that I can know if it's working. And if any of you have been on this path for very long, you know that those answers rarely come. Um, it's, it's never as clean as a, a study, for example, a double blind study. Regardless, we do have some information on breath and cold, but those both of them cannot be double blind studied. Um, so the information that we have is limited due to that. Uh, now, what do I mean by that? So a double blind study is one in which both the participant and the provider have no idea whether someone's receiving the treatment. It is custom made for a pharmaceutical because you can give someone a pill with the active ingredient and you could give someone an identical looking pill without the active ingredient and you can measure, obviously, without the biases or the placebo effect um, being as strong. So with breath and cold, you can't double blind it. Essentially, when a participant gets into cold water, maybe there is a way. Maybe if you numbed their entire body, you could do it. But do you see the problem here, right? Like the person knows right away whether the water is cold or not cold. Those limitations being described, what are the benefits? So when we do the breathing, the breathing exercises, for example, we start to increase our oxygen levels. Okay. Now, for most people, most healthy people, your oxygen levels are probably in the 97%. That means that of the hemoglobin in your blood, the hemoglobin contains iron, which binds to the oxygen. And for most people, 97% of the hemoglobin that's available to have oxygen is bound to oxygen already. When you do the deep breathing, that pushes that up to 99 or 100%. Okay. 
So are you more oxygenated? Yes. It's a pretty small gain from that perspective. Additionally, you start to dissolve additional oxygen into your blood, into the plasma. The plasma is a poor, poor carrier of oxygen. That's why we have red blood and hemoglobin. Um, but regardless, you start to push those levels up. All right. Additionally, what starts to happen is that the tissue, uh, your tissue's oxygen levels start to increase. That's harder to measure than it is with your blood. Okay. But your, your, your tissues also have a level of oxygen inside of them. And, and that oxygen specifically is designed, well, it, it, your body intends to have that oxygen interact with the mitochondria. Okay. So here's how this works. When you breathe in, you breathe in this oxygen, which is actually a highly reactive compound. Uh, it's not a compound, a molecule. Uh, that's why we use the term oxidative stress, right? Or, or when things oxidate, like steel turns to rust, they break down. It's a highly reactive thing. We even talk about this concept of antioxidants, right? To bind to the oxygen so that it doesn't steal electrons from other stuff. When you steal electrons from other stuff, you cause problems. It starts to break down. But paradoxically, maybe even, our body has learned, uh, organisms that have developed lungs have learned that if we take in oxygen, we're far more effective at producing energy. So when a bacterium produces energy, they do so without oxygen. They don't have lungs. So they produce this energy by taking the glucose, the food that they eat, right? And they use a fermentative process. The fermentation has byproducts, lactic acid, alcohols, that kind of stuff, which is why we use bacteria to make alcohol because a byproduct of their quote unquote energy production is alcohol, right? So in a human, we can do that too. Our bodies will take in a glucose molecule, for example, into the cytoplasm of the cell and without oxygen, it can produce two ATP. ATP is the base unit of energy of the human body of all life on earth. And uh, cyanide, for example, stops the production of ATP, which is why it kills you. ATP is really important. Your heart doesn't beat, right? Like stuff doesn't happen if you don't have ATP. Now there's all the byproducts, lactic acid, the alcohols that your body has to deal with. It's called metabolic waste. If your body has enough time, so that's anaerobic respiration without oxygen. If your body has enough time, it's going to pull the byproducts, the ATP, all that stuff into the mitochondria, and it's going to get oxygen from your lungs, right? Via your blood supply. And via a few things called the Krebs cycle, the electron transport chain cycle, it uses that quality of oxygen, which is, it's, it's electron hungry. It wants electrons. And it throws off a bunch of electrons onto the oxygen. And in doing so, instead of two ATP, you've created 36 to 38 ATP. I'm not, I'm not a math major, but that's significant, right? From going from two to 38 from the same glucose molecule is a significant difference in the amount of energy production. There's another benefit. And that is that now there's no lactic acid. There's none of the alcohols. The metabolic waste from that process is carbon dioxide, which you breathe out, and water, which you also can eliminate fairly easily or at a later time. When we've, we've all experienced the process of anaerobic respiration, 
where the lactic acid starts to build in the muscles and eventually the muscle cannot continue to do the work that it needs to. In addition to that, those make the muscles tight, which introduces stress into the system and can lead to symptoms like uh, tendonitis, all right? So oxygen's really useful. And as we push the tissue oxygen levels up, that makes more oxygen available to the mitochondria, right? That's the first one that's pretty apparent to people. If I breathe more, that's what happens. Here's another benefit. When you breathe, the lactic acid and the alcohols, the metabolic waste that your muscles do produce, because inevitably it happens, but when that happens, your lymphatic system is responsible for removing those from the muscle tissue. The, they're like the local garbage men, okay? And then they get all that garbage into the garbage truck, which is more like your circulatory system, and then your filter organs, your liver and your kidney, filter out that waste and get rid of it. But your lymphatic system doesn't have a pump, and it only has a few places where it can dump that waste into your blood supply, which then your heart can take over to move it. So 50% of the pumping action for your lymphatic system is the negative thoracic pressure, the negative pressure that's created when you breathe deeply. So when we say cleansing breaths, it's literal. Your body starts to move waste, starts to eliminate waste because the lymphatic system is now moving more efficiently. All right? What else happens with breathing? As you breathe, you also start to do something called off-gassing or you're off-gassing CO2. So the rate at which you are producing CO2 is less than the rate at which you're breathing it out. Okay, so you're pushing off CO2. In addition to that, you're taking some of the CO2 and you're dissolving it into bicarbonate. Now this is important. Oxygen is basic in its pH. Carbon dioxide is acidic. When your body is measuring your oxygen levels, it measures your pH level of your blood. It doesn't actually monitor the oxygen concentration like you'd have with a, an O2 sat finger monitor, right? So when that happens, your body, when you need to breathe, for example, your body, your brainstem recognizes that your pH level has incre- uh, decreased and you've become more acidic. And so it says, hey, we should breathe, we should breathe. And as you breathe, oxygen rushes in and it pushes your blood more basic. Well, as you start to convert some of that carbon dioxide from acidic carbon dioxide into bicarbonate, bicarbonate is baking soda. Baking soda is basic. You remember that from your chemistry classes. So all of those things start to push up your pH level. And as your pH level goes up, Your acidity drops, right? And you become more basic. Is this helpful? Well, it depends on how you want to look at this. Your frontal lobe really wants to operate between 7.2 and 7.4. Or 7.4 and 7.6. No, I think it's 7.2 and 7.4. Anyway, it has a really narrow band of pH that it wants to operate in. As you start to get outside of those ranges, it doesn't function as well. This is beneficial for, for me and my clients, because the frontal lobe becomes the inhibitor of connecting between our brains and our bodies, usually. It's the thing that convinces us we're logical, that we don't have maladaptive tendencies, that being an alcoholic's okay, for example. Nothing against alcoholics, right? But you get the idea, right? It just convinces us that our maladaptive choices are fine. 
And as that thing starts to get out of the way, we're actually able to interact with the deeper parts of self, the deeper parts of our mind. I call it breaking your brain. All right. So we go through all of those iterations. Okay. All those things are happening to our body. In addition, our bodies also with the breath retention end up um, monitoring our blood supply. So remember that the, the, the oxygen saturation in our tissue stays high, but the oxygen saturation in our blood varies quite a bit. And when you go into your breath retention, what happens is that the oxygen saturation in your blood stays high for quite a while. And then as you've practiced and become better at it, eventually it starts to plummet. You can watch this with a O2 monitor on your finger, but it goes from 99% to 88% to 70 to 60, right? There have been times that my O2 monitor shut off because it's the reading is so low. And when your brainstem's monitoring that, it's like, oh boy, whoa, 60%. Oh my gosh, we've got a problem. I don't know what the problem is, but we're probably going to die, right? You can, I've, <laughs> fortunately or unfortunately, I've had this experience of watching someone pass away while an O2 monitor was on their finger. And uh, death is not an instantaneous thing. Um, it's certainly a, 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 a progression. But at the time where I would say they had passed away, their oxygen saturation in their blood was like 80%. Still surprisingly high. All that to say, the brainstem says, oh my gosh, <clears throat> this is a problem. Let's release all the cortisol and adrenaline that we've got other chemicals, anything that we can do because our life is in jeopardy, okay? So now you've exercised the fight or flight system. You have used the cortisol and adrenaline that you have, and when you rebuild your stores, your body's gonna build back more to be ready for the next time something happens. So now let's talk about the cold. When you step into the cold, <clears throat> remember, when you go into fight or flight, all of your resources your blood flow goes to your arms and your legs and your eyes and your ears to prepare you to run or to fight and to be have heightened sensory perception those those organs are great for surviving now uh, but the organs that are important for surviving later become starved of the blood flow they don't have it anymore so when you step into the cold, it reverses that process your body is interested in keeping its core temperature high and so the cold collapses all the arteries and vessels in your arms and your legs, forcing blood back to your core. Your core is where all of your long-term organs survive, long-term survival organs exist. And now they have resources to do their jobs, okay? This is controlled by the parasympathetic nervous system. So now you have exercised that end of your autonomic nervous system and it becomes stronger and more adaptive. The cold does a lot of other things too. And a lot of it can be specific to the, what ails you. If someone was a diabetic and they said, why should I do cold? We've learned that by exposing your body to cold, it will increase your insulin receptiveness more than metformin, for example. Metformin is the, the most commonly prescribed medication, first medication for diabetes patients, all right? But what happens over time is as our bodies become resistant to insulin because of eating too much sugar or disconnecting from our bodies or whatever the mechanism ends up being, 
the insulin receptor, instead of sitting on the outside of the cell, starts to retreat to the interior of the cell, which makes it more resistant to the communicator insulin, which says, hey, take in a glucose molecule. What does that glucose molecule do? Oh yeah, it produces energy in the cytoplasm or in the mitochondria, right? We're putting this all together now. So when you get into the cold, your body needs a lot of energy because it needs to warm itself back up, okay? And because of that, now the insulin receptor says, I'm not very useful this deep into the cell. We need a lot of ATP if we're going to do cold a lot. So it starts to migrate to the outer, outer areas of the, of the cell, which makes it more receptive. You become less resistant to the insulin, okay? Another amazing thing is that your body starts to produce something called brown fat. Brown fat is not like white fat. But it is, you produce it in limited quantities, usually around your collarbone and along your spine. But it is the most dense, energy-dense tissue in your body. It's something like four to 500 times more energy-dense than other tissues in your body. Don't quote me on that, but get the point. It's just a lot more energy-dense. Why is it energy-dense? It's energy-dense because of the concentration of mitochondria in it. That's the reason it's brown. So that with your naked eye, you are literally seeing the conglomeration of billions of mitochondria that make, the, that make the appearance of the fat appear brown as opposed to white. So now not only are you feeding your mitochondria with a bunch of oxygen, but now you have a lot more mitochondria, which means you can produce a lot more energy. Dealing with chronic fatigue? That sounds interesting, doesn't it? Okay. The cold also does things to your mind. Obviously, there's body implications and there's more we could talk about, but what happens to your mind is fascinating. It begins to teach you the art of being present. It begins to teach you the basics of a disciplined mind. An undisciplined mind, we all experience the effects of. If you want a microcosm, or maybe it's a macrocosm, no, I think it's a microcosm, of what an undisciplined mind is, scroll someone else's Facebook feed. Not yours, because your brain's convinced that that's important. Scroll someone else's, right? And as you scroll, man, the chatter, right? Like there's just so much noise going on. Not that it's not important, not that whatever, but the point is there's just so much. It's called the monkey brain. Blah, 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 blah. And that's what most of us experience all the time. Chatter, 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 chatter. Until we ask the question, is there something else? Do we actually realize that this is a part of us and not all of us? When you get into the cold, that thing shuts off. Blah, 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 get into the cold. Boop, it's gone. You're not, you're not thinking about your Facebook feed. You're not thinking about the number of followers that you have. You're not thinking about work. You're not thinking, about, you are just experiencing now in the cold, right? That becomes a gateway for the rest of the work. This is what I do with people, right? The rest of the work becomes then, can we soften the frontal lobe? Can we ask this to kind of gently move away so we can access the deeper parts of self? And can we be present with those deeper parts of self? Can we be present with those uncomfortable emotions that to this point have proven maladaptive to us in our life? It's the reason we went for the alcohol, because I can't feel this way. Or the excessive shopping or the excessive eating, whatever the maladaptive behavior is, can I be present with this thing with this monster because that monster is you it's not actually a monster it's a part of you 
It's an important part of you. It's an exiled part. So the cold offers that opportunity to you. And this progression happens. It happened with me. It happens with many people I work with. But when you first start, the cold is painful. That's the way it's described, right? Like, oh my gosh, this is so painful. And that was my experience too. It took me a while to get up the gumption to do it. And then when I did it, I was like, yeah, that sucked. That was awful. And then this progression starts to happen where it's like, wow, okay, it's not pain. Like, I wouldn't describe this as pain. I would describe it as loud, certainly really loud on a sensation scale, but it's not painful. And then believe it or not, it progresses to this point where it becomes a friend. It becomes a place to connect with yourself, to connect with things much bigger than you, and to be present. Especially when you feel like that's the last thing on the, on the planet that you can do. So the benefits are, what's the term? Legion. <laughs> that's the right way to say it. There's so many benefits to this. Okay. And understanding that can certainly be helpful, but it is not enough. And I think this is a really important thing to consider because as, as much as I wanted my left frontal, like I wanted to know why and why this was working, I was fooling myself by not acknowledging that in order for me to actually do something like this, in order for me to do anything in life that was difficult, it required the requisite emotional energy to actually get it done. And we never give that any credit. We always say, hey, if it's logical, oh yeah, I'll do that. Okay, getting up at 6 a.m. to run 12 miles is probably logical. Probably good for your health. I don't know, whatever those numbers are. You get the point. We don't do it. We don't do it because we are missing the emotional component required to do it. So to my dear friend who asked this question, to all of you that are listening and considering this, that's what I want to leave you with today. What would it take for you to feel? I can't describe this. I, and sometimes it's frustrating to me. But what would it take for you to feel to make a change in your life? Whether it's for your health or for your relationships, for your family, whatever it is that you, that you, that, that you inherently know is a direction that you want to go, what will it take? It's not more information. That's a never-ending road. The real question is, what emotion will it take for you to get there? And are you willing to feel it? Are you willing to feel the fear of your mortality with some of the decisions that you're making? Are you willing to feel the fear of divorce with some of the decisions that you're making? Financially, career-wise, all of those things. And the minute you can start asking the question from that perspective, your whole world will change. Things will open up in ways that you can't comprehend right now. And as they do, I'd love to hear about it. I'd love, I'd love for everyone to hear what your experience is. But that's my challenge to you. That's the what if for this week. What if the thing that I can't seem to do, or I can't seem to get up the motivation to do, what if it's less about filling in this 
this logical piece and just more about really being with your body and your emotional centers. Because once those two come into alignment, your body and your mind, there really is not much that you can't do. That is the power of belief. And coming back to this idea of a double-blind study, isn't it so interesting how powerful that effect can be? We know that the placebo effect can be 40-50% of an effect. So you're telling me that if someone gets a pill that we say, hey, look, this is going to lower your blood pressure. And they get a placebo pill, has none of the active ingredient. Someone else gets the active ingredient. Let's say they drop theirs by 10 points. You're telling me that someone who just believes that they have received the drug can lower their blood pressure by five points, objectively lower their blood pressure. What? Why don't we talk more about this? Here's where it gets even crazier. A double blind acknowledges that it's not only the belief of the person who's receiving the pill that matters, but it is also the belief of the practitioner administering the pill that matters. Now, I know that there will be people who debate the mechanism by which that works, but the point is, is that it matters. The belief matters. Your belief matters. That's inherent in human beings. We understand that, and it's taught out of us. Belief is a connection between the body and the mind. It is agreement between the two. And we often use the term belief for beneficial things, but that can go the opposite way as well. What you believe matters. If you believe that life is horrible and that it's out to destroy you, that matters. You are creation. You create. Like, that is what we do. And to take it one final step further, that 40 to 50% of an effect that we see with placebo, that is with, by definition, an undisciplined mind. Studies are designed to gather all types of people. Imagine the effects of a quote-unquote placebo of a disciplined mind, one that understands the connection between mind and body, one that understands the power of belief. Who are we to limit that? So finally, for my practitioners out there, I know that it's difficult. Sometimes there are difficult prognoses. Certainly, and I've worked with many of you as you've encountered these things and your beliefs and your feelings around this, delivering really hard news to patients. I would encourage you that although your duty may require that, to also include space for what if. Space for belief. You may be surprised what happens you may see a miracle. I'll talk with you next week. Bye.